You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com, Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Shouldn't you be at work? It's a lovely chip! Oh, it's a brilliant goal! From Lord Bohinen! Still it's not away. Southgate shot. Milosevic scores. DPR could do with a bit of magic from him. Maybe this is it. It is! Andy Sinton from nothing. Brian Roy has headed for his into lead. Whelan. Oh, what a goal from Noel Whelan. No power on it whatsoever. But Saibi has made a horrendous error. Now, you know him better than anybody, probably. Do you back him to score quickly, yes or no? Yes. Only oh, Hassan. No. Hello and welcome to Quickly Kevin with me, Josh Widdicombe. Joining me is Michael Marden and the man who isn't Chris Skull. It's Tom <laughs> Crane. Hello. Hi, how are you doing? Good, good. Um... Due to a um, recording timings error, Chris Skull cannot be here this week for the for the emails, etc., the top and tail of the episode, as we call it. Uh, because, let's be honest, Michael, he misjudged how long it took to record an episode and needs to go into town. That's correct, isn't it? Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing over 100 episodes in, that can still happen. He thinks you can record an hour and a half episode in an hour. Yeah. <laughs> That's neither here nor there. Also, I need to go into town feels like quite a sort of vague thing to do, doesn't it? I need to go Yeah, he said town. he had meetings in boots. town. Oh, once again. Let, let's really... not forget that this is recorded the day West Ham play their first European game in probably 400 years. <laughs> so he's probably, um, he's probably meeting Darren Emerson to get the party started early doors. <laughs> Thank you for stepping in, Tom. Pleasure, pleasure. Shall we uh, get straight on to the... There's no 90s o'clock news this week because there's no Chris Skull. There's no Roberto Baggio as shit because there's no Chris Skull. So that gives us extra time for the electronic post bag. I'm Jim Rosenthal and this is the electronic post bag. You've got mail. Okay, big news. We have discussed last week... Um, Strikers that had bad goal-scoring records in the 90s but were still considered good strikers. Andrew Carson comes in. The ultimate striker with the crap goal-scoring record has to be Brian McClare. Oh. Brian McClare's goal-scoring record is absolutely dog shit. Ready to defend him, Michael? Of course. Always ready. <laughs> did you did you rate Brian McClare? Loved him. Choco McClare was a fantastic player. And also, I mean, I know what my defence is going to be because people seem to be attacking the same sort of player each time and judging them entirely yeah, on that, goals. Yeah, that are no good in front of goal? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Brian McClare, let's just, for the, for the record, he scored in 355 Manchester United appearances. He scored 88 goals. Okay. In 30 Scotland appearances. That's about one in four, isn't it? One in four, in yeah. 30 Scotland appearances. He scored twice. I mean, I don't know enough about Scotland uh, and their level 
during his peak playing time for the country. Well, they would have been in the they would have been in the 1990 World Cup and Euro 92. So that's two successful qualification campaigns he's played in. But he wasn't an out and out striker. Like yeah. That's 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 the thing. You sort of can't judge him just on goals. He was a forward, but he would also play deeper in midfield. He would sort of link up the would play. He be, would he be listed as a midfielder in fantasy football league at the moment? I think he definitely would. If Mo Salah and Sadio Mane are midfielders, he would he would definitely be a midfielder. But he he wasn't rubbish. Shall I run you through some of his honours? Uh, I don't know his team honours in the teams that were carrying him. Yeah. Well, I don't know if the teams were carrying him. <laughs> I mean, that's that's unfair. The fact that he plays a part in these teams that win yeah. these honours, I think, is a, is a testament to his ability. But he's won uh, Scottish Premier Division. He won four Premier Leagues, two FA Cups, a League Cup, five five or six Charity Shields, European Cup Winners Cup, European Super Cup, and this is he was there sort of pre dominance as well. So he was kind of there in the early days. He's one of Fergie's oh, really? very early signings. So he was he was a very very good player and is a player that's is loved and adored. I would say by most. Manchester United fans so I think it's okay. unfair to judge him just on that okay okay uh, do you know what I was just going to take you through his goal scoring record for Man U it, it, interestingly he did really well for them before they got good in his first season in this division one then he scored tw- 24 and 40 nice that's a, that's a fantastic that's record. great yeah that's yeah really good. exactly then and he, he had a couple of lean seasons a five in 37 etc yeah. and then he got 18 in 20 in 42 which is good then Manu's period of dominance, McClare went off the boil as a... I mean, maybe they just played him further and further back. Because in the 96-97 season, which we talk about today, he scored zero in 19 games. <laughs> well, that's that's obviously not a great record. What I would say then is once we signed Cantona, McClare, who used to play as a striker alongside Mark Hughes, he began dropping deeper into midfield. So a reflection of that is that his goal record is going to be slightly less prolific. But he was a fantastic player. He was player of the year uh, for his first season. But um, I think a testament to how good a player McLaren actually was is that he signed for United in 87-88 and was there for 10 years until... 97 98 now the back end of that he was far more of a kind of utility player lot of sub appearance but would slot in anywhere across the midfield in the front line and he was one of the last if not the last of the old guard to leave the club now with a manager like ferguson who is notoriously unsentimental when it comes to shifting players on be it brian robson steve bruce kanchelskis paul ince like the moment he got a whiff that those guys, that their abilities were failing, they, they were gone. They left the club. And McClare was there until 97, 98. One more year, he would have won the Champions League, which is incredible. So I think he was a very good player that should not be judged only on his goals. Okay. Crane, any views? Did you have those conversations when you were in secondary school? Let's say, for example, when he scored five in 37 with your mates, and you'd say, if I played up front for Man United, would I score more than five goals yeah. in 37 games, despite the fact you were 14 and yeah. you, you weren't even in the school team. <laughs> and you'd still be <laughs> discussing whether, if you were up front instead of Andreas Lenzi for Forrest, whether you'd actually get... I, I, you, you, I really had that belief for that age that I would, just by hanging around, get six or seven goals a season, which is incredibly arrogant. Yeah. Do you think Brian McClare was... is the proof that that didn't, wouldn't have happened? <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think there is. Yeah, th- these players are so much better than you can ever imagine. And I'm sure you're right, Michael. I'm sure that he did, offered so much more in his, his all-round game. There must be reason that Ferguson loved him, surely. 
Um, but uh, yeah, I, I did generally believe that. I used to think if you know if I was if I was popped up front for Man United, I'd definitely get eight goals. That was what I was like when I was fifteen or whatever. Do you think you'd have got one? Ridiculous. I think I would. Do I think I'd score? No, I don't think I'd score one goal. No, I think I'd be so exhausted after about seven minutes that it yeah. would just be basically if I don't score in the first seven minutes, then it's not going to happen, and I'm not going to score in the first seven minutes. So I don't think I'd score once. Okay. Hi guys, big fan of the show. Inspired by the latest episode in which you discuss Kevin Keegan's involvement in the Meat Management Industry Awards. <laughs> I wanted to show you a story of when Rude Hullet spoke at a work event of ours a few years back, which didn't go entirely to plan. At the time, I was working on the sponsorship team of a Champions League sponsor. Our annual internal company event was coming up, business updates, new launches, etc, etc., featuring all the big dogs from across the country. And having only recently joined Keen to Make an Impression, put myself forward to contract some talent for the event. Having worked with him in my previous job, I thought Champions League winner and all-round 90s football legend Rude Hullet would be the perfect choice. The idea went down well, so I set about getting everything sorted, drafting a rough structure on the sort of topics I wanted him to cover when he came on stage, teamwork, achieving a common goal and other such corporate nonsense. When the day arrived, however, after talking to him backstage, it transpired he had definitely not read the briefing, but assured me that he'd done tons of these before and would just freestyle it. (laughs) Uneasy, but without much comeback, I simply reaffirmed the key topics he needed to cover and on he went. It started well and the audience seemed to be receptive to him, but then came his two anecdotes. The first about a team building day when he was at Chelsea. Okay, so far so good, I thought involved them going to Epsom races and Erlen Johnson getting so drunk he, to quote, shit in his pants and fell over on the bus home. <laughs> I really hope that's like a like the 13B bus as well. I hope it's just like a, a normal bus. He's getting Imagine getting so drunk that you shit yourself. Yeah, that's awful. That's awful. Also, falling over on the bus home. Is nothing compared. It's, it's such a non thing compared to shitting in your own pants. Oh, that's awful. <laughs> However, the second anecdote was about the biggest penis he'd ever seen, right. which belonged to AC Milan manager Arrigo Sacchi. <laughs> <laughs> that was a twist. I wasn't expecting that. And how did he see the manager's penis? That feels like <laughs> they're, they're not sharing one. the shower. He's not in the bath after the game. Unless like, he's so proud of it that when the other players are going to the showers, he's taking his suit off and going, I'll come in as well, lads. <laughs> Check out this. It's the way he earns their respect. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. Okay. Wow. Inconceivably, my boss and his boss saw the funny side and we were able to move on. So... Though Keegan may have been a seemingly strange choice to the Meat Management Industry Awards, I'd imagine his chat would be far less blue than Rude Hullet's. Yeah. I'd love to see that speech. I'd be yes, so excited. Yeah. On Kevin Keegan, someone has found... I'm not going to go into what bracket he is. I think that's crass to say what he's earning. But they found on a, a website a list of celebrities that you can hire for Kevin Keegan's rate. So this okay. is who you could get for the same rate as Kevin Keegan. I think, if anything, Kevin Keegan is the best. His rate is too low. His rate okay. is too low. Gillian McKeith. Okay, well, Erlen Johnson could have done with Gillian McKeith. <laughs> <laughs> Would have been a good booking. <laughs> You're not well, Erland. <laughs> you need to eat more roughage. Annika Rice. John Hartson. Jeffrey Archer. Martin yeah. Kemp. That's a good booking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Pete Waterman. Duncan okay. Goodhue, Bill Oddie, 
Judy Murray, Midge Yore, Chris Akabusi, and Toya Wilcox, and Brian Blessed. Do you think Keegan's put himself in the wrong group? You know how um, certain strikers would rather play a level down and score a lot of goals? Maybe Keegan's yes. of the corporate mentality that if he lowers his level a bit, he'll do he'll a get more, gigs. more corporate gigs. There's a comedian I know who does that. There's a comedian really? who does corporates famously below their rate. Do you think Keegan's doing that? Possibly. Unless, I mean, it could be that Rude Hullet is hoovering up all the top level corporate work at the moment because they know he's got such incredible stories from his time at Chelsea. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> Kevin Keegan can't get in a look in. Keegan sat there thinking, I wish I'd seen Bill Shankly's penis. Because <laughs> I just lie and say he had a massive dick. <laughs> Uh, would you like to know what Keegan does? This is from Ross Hillett. I hired Kevin Keegan. I worked at a business-to-business conferences for 15 years. Approximately 10 years ago, my company ran the annual insurance conference in London. and We were looking for a relatively famous person that people across the UK and Europe of various ages would know and therefore would like to see at a post-event drinks reception. Given his days at Hamburg, German audience, Liverpool, older UK audience, and Newcastle, the infinite rant, younger crowd, I pushed for him over an ex-politician and a rugby star. The board thankfully agreed, and we hired Kev for the night. He was an absolute star. He turned up an hour early and went round every sponsor one by one, saying hello and taking pictures with everyone. No way. Then upon entering the room, the chairperson for the event got everyone to stand up and take part in a pre-planned Kevin Keegan quiz for everyone in the room, whereby if you got a question wrong, you sat down. So the person remaining standing would win an iPod. And Kevin Keegan won an iPod. No. <laughs> he got the second question wrong about his career, number of England caps. Oh, he was actually, he was involved in it. He was involved in it, in it and he got That's the second madness. question wrong. How? Come on, Kevin. You should be one iPod richer. Yeah. He got on stage and did 15 minutes of enjoyable anecdotes, oddly not mentioning St. Etienne, including how he was somewhat aggrieved that he'd become more famous for I Would Love It than his actual football achievements. Overall, a good egg and stayed for two hours more than he was contractually had to. In a good way, we weren't asking for him to leave. Hashtag sign him up, Ross Hillett. That is so nice. That was great. It's so nice to hear, hear, isn't it, that? I've got a lot of respect for Kevin Keegan over this. I'm delighted. Talking about Roberto Baggio, uh, and in particular Skull's absence for this section, I'd like to stealth in while he's gone, and I'd like to... Uh, yes, if he listens to the show. See if he listens to the show, but also I'd like to um, I'd like to run my own feature this week. Oh, called, okay. Uh, Roberto Baggio was great. But still, Baggio. Oh, yes. little defense this is me now yeah. uh, going going on the attack it's my it's my witness if you like in the courtroom of baggio yeah and um i'd like to focus on uh, his goal scoring return but at international level arguably the highest level that any footballer yeah. can play now as a point of cross-reference i'd like to submit alan shearer as evidence oh i think we can is... all agree that shearer is alongside gary lineker perhaps the greatest england striker he of 12 our... games without a goal once didn't he but apart from that yes i think he he did he did his for england his record was uh 30 goals in 63 games very strong which is very strong, strong. Yeah. it's a goal every 2.1 games perfect perfect and he is you know an archetypal center forward physical strong he's a goal scorer scores every kind yeah. of goal mm-hmm. roberto baggio not the same player as uh, 
Alan Shearer, and someone who is criticised on this show by Chris for his goal-scoring record, at international level, in 56 games, scored 27 goals. So his average goals per game was 2.07, within 0.3 of Alan Shearer, someone who is universally recognised as having a very prolific good record. And in addition to that, Roberto Baggio scored nine goals at different World Cups. Nine goals, okay, which is very impressive. impressive. Here's a list of players that haven't scored that many goals at World Cups. Eusebio, Diego Maradona, Rudy Voller, Thierry Henry, Lionel Messi, and Cristiano Ronaldo all have fewer goals at the highest level than Roberto Baggio. So I, I think it's a little bit worried you're going to read out all players who haven't scored nine goals for the World Cups. That's an incredibly long list. Because <laughs> I, yeah. do, I do need to get on with my day, to be honest, Michael. <laughs> Diego Forlan, Asamoa Gaia. <laughs> I could go on. That's fascinating. I, I mean, I, I'm a huge Roberto Baggio fan. He's one of my best ever. As, my... as, as is everyone in the world, Crane, except Chris Skull. Chris Skull, we watched a film about Baggio and he said he couldn't, he just didn't realise that he was a big deal. amazing absolutely madness now on another one of our favorite people to talk about hello quickly kevin teen this is from jonathan hargreaves if you have time for any more peter chilton penalty stories i have a pretty good one in 1998 i was at university at lse the student union wasn't the best but every now and then we would have a can't miss event i saw judge jules djing one night one event that was hands down or feet first, uh, or hands <laughs> first, feet first, uh, which is how Peter Chilton likes to dive, according to his tips. One event that was hands down, or hands first, feet first, the best take a penalty against Peter Shilton. The setup of the student union was a bar on the ground floor, and in the basement was a bigger entertainment space where they'd set up the special events. On this evening, they had a five-a-side goal set up, he could line up to take a penalty against Schiltz himself. The place was packed. There was no <laughs> cost to take a penalty, just a long line to wait in. If you scored, you won a bottle of Beck's. They had on the table, on the side, a dozen or so bottles to hand. It was quickly apparent that a dozen or so wasn't going to be enough. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. I can't remember how many I saw scored, but I remember that of six mates I was with, three of us scored <laughs> against Peter Shilton in a five-a-side goal. That is pathetic from Shilton. When I was at school, I won't give the name, um, my friend, his parents used to enter these, they were called compers, people who enter competitions yeah, yeah. as a sort of, uh, as a hobby, basically, yeah. or more than a hobby. Anyway, they entered this Kellogg's competition Um Around the time of Euro 96, we had to write a poem about Euro 96 and it would get put on the back of the box. Anyway, they won this. The prize was, it meant him and four other people had to take a penalty at halftime at QPR against Peter Shilton. Uh, and the winner would win a cash prize. My friend won that pen- that penalty shootout when he was 15 and he won £120,000. What? Jesus. Yep. No. And he was 15. Yeah, yeah. And he suddenly became the coolest person in school. Mad. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely mad. One of the people he was playing against was like a, an 11-year-old kid. Now, if I knew £120,000 on the line, I, I'd swap him out for someone else in the family, <laughs> yeah, surely. surely. <laughs> I know he really wants to him take this well. penalty. The pressure on him. Like, yeah. you don't want that on a kid's what are you shoulders. Doing? 
I'd, to be honest, I'd, I'd probably pay like an, an ex-semi-pro to do it for me. I'd say, look, have a grand if you win this. Just pretend you're in the family. Yeah, yeah get in a ring. <laughs> do this. I'd, I'd split yeah, 60 exactly. grand, 60 grand with yeah, Matt yeah, Letizia. Yeah. <laughs> so what What parents are going, you know, little Timmy, but he really wants to do this. He's always wanted to kick a ball at halftime at QPR. I mean, yeah, madness. But anyway, my friend won that. Wow. Uh, another, another penalty conceded by Peter Shilton. Uh, if you have any stories about Peter Shilton, Kevin Keegan, or uh, strikers that don't... If you've got any strikers that are proper strikers with bad goal-scoring records, this is the place to get in touch. Get in touch with the show. Email hello at quicklykevin.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at quicklykevin and sign up to the mailing list at quicklykevin.com. Now, before uh, we get into the main body of the episode, I should say, uh, if you want 15 minutes more of this and you want it uh, on Fridays rather than Mondays, do sign up to the Patreon, patreon.com forward slash quickly kevin on there we've got all the steve bruce episodes we've got all the other extra episodes all there the moment you sign up lots of extra content patreon.com forward slash quickly kevin crane also who you know it's probably the most appearances of any quickly kevin guest you now have Mm. your own podcast which everyone should listen to because it's great oh thank you very much yeah um yeah i'd love people to listen to it um it's called my favorite takeaway and uh, it's myself and my mate Simran. We go to um, a special guest house each week and we share their favourite takeaway with them and we talk about food and food memories and takeaway disasters and all this sort of stuff. It's basically a show for people who love food but sort of can't always be bothered to cook it. It's the way we, we, we talk about it. We, we, we've been to your house, Josh. Yeah. We've done, we, we had a t- an Indian takeaway with you, which was great fun. We've got people like uh, James A. Castor and Andy Oliver and Ed Gamble and Tom Allen and all these brilliant people coming up. And it's just a lot of fun. It's really, really fun. It's a great podcast. Oh, thank you very much. Did you enjoy it? I enjoyed doing it and I enjoy listening to it, which is more important because you're not trying to get people to do it. You're trying to get people to listen to it. So so whether I enjoyed doing it is neither here nor there, Tom. Is by the by, you've created a bit of a storm with the fact that you don't have rice with your Indian takeaway, and Which I was I actually stand listening by. to a radio show with Gabby Roslin three days ago, and they were discussing it on it. The were fact they? That you don't have rice with it. They were. It was random. Yeah, yeah. They were talking. They were talking about that. And then a guy talked about the podcast. It was very kind. But he, they were talking about the fact that you don't have rice with your Indian takeaway. So it's that sort of stuff. It's real sort of detailed moonshine. My favourite takeaway. Listen to it in the gaps when you're not listening to Quickly Kevin. And if you want to read any books, Chris wanted us to promote his book. He's got a book out on 90s football, which is called Can We Not Knock It? Go to his social media. It'll be in his biog, I'm sure. And if you like 90s literature, Watching Neighbours Twice a Day, the book and audio book, because I know these people who listen to podcasts generally can't be bothered to read books. So do just get the audio book on Audible, is my book about growing up in the 90s and all the TV we watched. That is the end of the sales. Let's get on with the episode. It's a brand new type of episode when we take you back to just one month in the 90s. It is this month in 1996. Hello and welcome to Quickly Kevin, this week's guest, Chris Skull. How does that feel, Skull? You're making it look easy. Making it look easy. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it took real talent. Turns out anyone could do it. (laughs) <laughs> to use your native language. It's amazing, yeah. yeah. Uh, how are you keeping, Chris? What have you been up to? No, etc. Right. Um, yeah. So for this week, we thought we'd record a um, a new... We've been looking for new formats. We're always looking to bring Quickly Kevin into... 
well, we're not looking to bring Quickly Kevin into the modern age. That's the exact opposite of what we're trying to do. But we thought it'd be nice uh, to do this month in the 90s. And then over the next 120 years, we'll do 120 of these episodes and judge which was the most important month for football in the 90s. We have chosen this month, 25 years ago, September 1996. Guys, what were we all up to personally in September 1996? You're starting school again, aren't you? You're starting school yeah. after a wonderful summer off. I was, I was starting year nine. Yeah. So I was, I was going into my SATs, my first SATs year. In year nine, I was, I was the top of the lower site. So our school was divided year seven, eight, and nine. You were mm. kind of the kings of your little school there. So, and then you'd go up, and then year 10 was you had the upper site. So oh, here... Right. We were the, we were the, we owned the place at this point. You, oh wow! You you just ascended to be to running yeah. the running the school. Yeah, we were first you a cool in the school line. kids, Chris. Where were you in the in the social? I think uh, kind of the jester, the the and the bottom rung of the coolest group. If you were a Premier League team, <laughs> if if your school was the yeah. Premier League, uh, what, what what team were you? I was. I think I was United, but I was Jordi Cruyff. <laughs> I don't even understand what. That... Oh, so you were you were in a good team in a but cool you were... group, but yeah. very the bottom of the pecking order. So does that mean your dad was really cool, Scott? <laughs> you were, you were tra- trading on his name for for decades. People say your dad's the only reason you're in this cool group. <laughs> Do you know your dad's the coolest person to ever go to this school? <laughs> yeah, you weren't allowed to have skull on the back of your shirt. You said to have Chris. <laughs> Um, well, do you know what he does come up in this month? Yeah, he does like. actually. It's a friend um, of mind. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Crane? Where were you? Who were you? Which team was I? Uh, that's a tricky one, isn't it? I mean, I think I was I was pretty mid table. It's a bit like you, Chris. Really, I think uh, maybe like a Tottenham of that sort of time, sort of mid yeah, yeah. mid table. I was cool. kind of under Jerry Francis. Oh. Under Jerry Francis. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> you had the um, haircut as well, didn't you, Crane? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Very big shirts. It was all kind of a. It was a weird time. Um, but yeah, similar to you, sort of like a, a bit of a floater. I think that was that was, that was kind of where I was at school. Michael, yeah. where was I in the hierarchy, or what was I doing in my life at this point in time? Well, let's have both. A little bit of both. Uh, well, I was just starting A levels. Oh right, slightly, slightly yeah, older than you guys. So this oh wow, was coming off the back of summer of '96, just starting uh, A levels, and I think oh, at this a point, great time to be going into sick form, just off the back of Euro '96. <laughs> well, I was thinking about it, and I, obviously we're going to sort of contain this to September, but that was probably the best August of my entire life. I'm sorry, we won't be accepting August anecdotes. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk about losing my virginity. God damn it! <laughs> What a pre-season. Yeah, Yeah, unfortunately. I didn't find any form in the league. That's the problem. Michael went to to a water park with Chris Sutton on August the 1st, but he can't tell us about it. It was a great day. (laughs) What we're finding is that all of us were on the periphery of groups. Well, hang on. Where were you, Josh? I was was on the periphery of, I'd say, the second. So there was the coolest group that should be, be the sport people. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, the kind of jocks. So I was nowhere yeah. near that. But then there was the the music group, the kind of which was based around the band Weedle, which was one of the school <laughs> bands. Um, and I was on the periphery of the people that liked music. With me, you have to remember that um, my sort of defining characteristic was I was the head choir boy at Bath Abbey. And then uh, the Christmas before this in 1995, at the Christmas assembly, I was forced to sing 
uh, Jingle Bells in Spanish to the entire school, which um, <laughs> sort of did mark me quite a lot. It had quite an effect. Defined <laughs> So there you. was a brief... It did define me. And there was a period for about a year after that where, like, year sevens would sort of take the piss out of me, despite the fact I was a year nine. <laughs> We go sing oh, us a song, and I, people, there was a joke. Sing us I was, a song, mate. I, I was Mr. Tobin's son. Mr. Tobin was the the music teacher and a bit of a dork. And Year Sevens would come up to me and sing that thing, pia pia piano piano, all this sort of stuff. Um, it was a difficult time, but then uh, gradually memories fade, don't they? And I think by September 1996, I was back to the middle again. Oh, that's but, good. Um, that's yeah, good. exactly. All things right, don't they? It's, it's yeah, it's ex- exactly. Um, <laughs> what does Jingle Bell sound like in Spanish? It goes, I think it's um, din don dan, din don dan, vamos a belém, anacido nino que rece todo bien. There you are, that's enough of it. But wow, that's basically what I can remember. Good. Thank you very much. <laughs> that's really good. Isn't it? I'm gonna... No wonder they force you to do it, it's great. <laughs> I'm now going to have quickly Kevin sort of people stopping me in the street yeah, going, Are you, you that dork? You sang. <laughs> hey, hey, you loser, sings jingle bells in Spanish. <laughs> To be thought of as a dork by the kind of people that are into Quickly Kevin is unbelievable. That's as well. true. I mean, I, I, I've, been this this I've been to your live This is the home of all. This is really shows. a refuge for dorks. Let's be honest. <laughs> let's right. Four people that claim they're on the periphery of groups. Let's <laughs> do be you honest. Do, do you remember, Josh? When I, I I went to see you guys play live at the Hackney Empire, and I looked out at your audience and I said to you, "You've got a type, haven't you?" <laughs> 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 um, there's a certain type of person that listens to this, and I, I am one of those people. Hi. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> well, shall we? Uh, shall we take ourselves back to the month before we get into the football stories uh, by um, listening to uh, what was going on that month? So the coming ITV news. When it comes to video games, the more bits, the better. And the new machine from Nintendo is as good as it gets. French and Germans are planning to sideline the city of London if Britain doesn't join the European single currency. Ready or not, here I come, you can't hide. Good evening, a controversial rap artist who led a troubled existence has lost his fight for life. Gangster rap singer Tupac Shakur died tonight in a Las Vegas hospital. You can't hide, gonna find you and make you. So that was the number one of the month with some of the uh, big news stories as well. I'd say the thing that takes me back most, obviously, is Wannabe but by the Spice Girls, because I vividly remember that. That was number one for eight weeks. Wow. I assumed it was number one for longer, actually. In my memory, like... Num- most sort of successful number ones were there for months, but maybe that's just sort of, sort of Robin Hood effect. I've got that sort of memory of it, but eight weeks, I'd assume it was there for like eight six years. months or something. Six months? What have you heard the Spice Girls as number one for six months? I think my memory of listening to the radio on the way into school was basically you just listen to one song for about four months. It would just go round and round and round and round and yeah. then they'd move on to another one. That's basically what would happen. Was your mum buying a single? Is that what was happening? <laughs> Your mum bought a single every four months. Deck. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. I've got a link to this. Actually, um, my, my hairdresser uh, claims he was the bouncer in the video for Wannabe. 
Oh wow! You are. But he also That's told me he um, set up Posh and Beck, so I don't know really. <laughs> He's told me a lot of things, to be honest. Were you a fan of the Spice Girls? Um, it was really. Reg- I want to use the word refreshing when they burst onto the scene, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, you I like it, it refreshing. Yeah, it was. As <laughs> a thirteen-year-old, you're like, at last, a breath of fresh air in the I music industry. I back on my my rocking chair with my cigar and my cognac at thirteen years old. I thought, this is refreshing. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't this, nice? <laughs> this is just the Philip we need in the yeah. <laughs> young people just having a good time. And is there anything wrong with that? At bloody last, if you ask me. And it's girl power, not just. It's a positive message, and I'm behind it, one hundred percent. What What had you been listening to before that, then, Skull? What was your What, what Why had this been so refreshing? Why Why were you so parched? <laughs> yeah, I was listening to a lot of. Robbie Williams had just started his solo career around here. Yeah, I suppose. Listening to him. Yet. Blur is Blur Country House. Is that around? That was ninety five. Yeah, five. So, you know, it's a bit, yeah. it's a bit samey, isn't it? Like, it's, it's just yeah. different. It was different. It's just a bit different. We were ready for a change culturally. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? You know, we were talking about eight weeks at number one doesn't feel enough. Is that because the yardstick for a nineties number one is "I Will Always Love You," which was number one? Like, you always judge. Well, how no, long that's one not is the, like that. There's two bigger number one, two longer number ones in the nineties than that. Really. Yeah, oh, everything Brian I Adams. do, I do it for you by Brian Adams. Yeah, and Love Is yep. All Around by Wet Wet Wet. Wow, oh, that was yeah. number one for eight. How long? Do I we think know? both of them were number one for about sixteen weeks. Bloody, that's a long time, isn't it? Have you had? Have you had this sort of relationship with these lot of these songs? At the time, I hated them because you yeah. heard them so much. But then, as time passes, and now you hear them more rarely, it's like, oh yeah, it has a nostalgic thing. So my relationship with these, like for instance, Wet Wet Wet, is a good example. I literally couldn't stand that song. I hated it so much. <laughs> But, but now, now you listen like, oh, to it every yeah. morning, don't you? And I find it, I find it refreshing. I find it refreshing, John. <laughs> Breath of fresh air. In the shower, having a cold drink, listening to Wet, Wet, Wet. And what a perfect song for the shower as well, Wet, Wet, Wet. Lovely. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, topping up with like... a bit of skag as well. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't like the Spice Girls. because I, I, By the age of 13, and I'm sure, I bet Mike was the same with this, that I felt like I was too... I was too into bands that played their own instruments and took yeah. themselves seriously to entertain that I'd be a fan of a pop band like the Spice Girls. Was Definitely. that the same with yeah. you, Michael? I mean, it was quite a seismic thing in my house. I grew up in a house that was... My, I've got two sisters who are a little bit younger than me, but it was huge Like for them. It was on non-stop. My mum was also quite a young mum, so she was also a fan. And then our house was the sort of pre going out house so huh. three nights a week it would be filled with teenage girls all getting ready so my life was an endless soundtrack of whatever first of all it was new kids on the block and then it's take that then it was the spice girls so i'm sort of similarly it felt like it was around for much longer than it was um but i, I was yeah. a fan at that time i was pretending that i was a fan of you know dipping my toe in blur and oasis i was sort of flirting with smashing pumpkins and weezer the blue album but because I, none of my friends or family were really into music, I'm, mm. I was a closet uh, diva fan. So I loved like <laughs> Mariah Carey, Gloria Estefan, uh, Eternal. And Amazing. And Wedding was a big person then. So I had to pretend like, oh, yeah, God, God, yeah, Nirvana, Kurt Cobain, can't believe he's dead. Secretly listening to I Could Turn Back Time by Cher on my Walkman. <laughs> Absolutely this, amazing. This is the first time this has come up, isn't it? Your love, like <laughs> people we describe as divas. Yeah, yeah. I absolutely yeah. love a diva. Early nineties, Mariah Carey. Yep, yes, please. Yeah, I, yeah. I did a gig uh, once at the Ministry of Sound, which they had a very short-lived minist- um, comedy night there, 
and the manager of Eternal tried to sign me afterwards, which would have been such a weird... <laughs> I don't know how he'd have used me in a way that would have been just a career change. Was he looking to replace Louise? Is that why he was <laughs> Oh, my God, that would have been amazing. Can you do, how did that happen? Did he hear you singing Jingle Bells in Spanish and then go, oh, that, hey, that's what it was. know yeah, that yeah, new yeah. sound you're looking for? Well, listen to this. <laughs> I'm so refreshed. I'm so refreshed. Um, yeah. It's interesting, though, Josh, you were saying there about that. I think that's true because when you're a teenager, so much of your identity at that point is wrapped up in music and what that says about you because you don't you're 40 what identity can you really have your parents pay for all your food you can't drive you can't do anything so it's like it's so important uh so to admit you like these other things are a big thing i was exactly like that i was was very much you know oasis blur all this sort of stuff but mainly because i didn't really have much of a personality at that point that i was confident in so i thought you'd wrap yourself around these things that you thought reflected you in a good right totally but now i would say i would challenge anyone to find a better top five on Spotify than the Spice Girls songs. Anyway, let's move on. Um, this was the launch of the N64 this month, which was... Uh, did you, any of you have an N64? I did. Uh, yeah, Mega Drive. It. You had a Mega Sega all the way. Really? Michael? Yeah. And Michael, you were a PC, were you? Uh, no, I, I mean, I pretty much had every console at some point, but the N64, in particular, GoldenEye, was, oh. I'd say, defined 97 to 2000 for me. There's yeah, nothing I, I played more, apart from Championship Manager, than, than GoldenEye. And the best of Gloria Estefan. <laughs> <laughs> I adored the N64. I got yeah. it for Christmas. It would have been Christmas 96 or Christmas 97. I've got no idea. With Diddy Kong Racing, where I could still, <sighs> I can still tell you, not tell you, but I could do every track on Diddy Kong Racing. Like they're they're burned into my mind. Yeah. If if I if you gave me a controller now, I think I could thrash almost anyone at Diddy Kong Racing now. <laughs> it's the bet. It's the thing in my life that I'm best at in the whole world. <laughs> the sort that sounds like you're sort of trying to impress a girl when you're 18. <laughs> you're if you gave me a controller now, I could thrash you easily, and I know all the courses. So yeah. Anyway, I'll leave my number here. Get in contact if you're interested. <laughs> It's amazing that it had the opposite effect in those days, isn't it? <laughs> I completely I agree. I think Diddy Kong Racing is, for me, I, I'm going to say, I think it's, it's more enjoyable than Mario Kart. Wow. Yeah, I, I, think I, think it's it's best, I think it's the best game I've ever played. Wow. I think it, it's amazing. And I ha- had also ISS 64 <sighs> that was oh. absolutely phenomenal football game. So let's move Fantastic. on to the football game. Did, you, did any of you have ISS 64? Yeah, I loved it. Incredible it was game. absolutely loved it. It was so good. It was one of those football games. I don't know if that still happens in FIFA now, but every football game in the 90s, you could work out the easiest way to score a goal. Yeah. And then yeah. once you'd worked out, and on ISS 64, you needed to get down the side and then run across the front of the penalty area. Like you're kind yeah. of cutting in from the wing and then just shooting to the goal. Is it true that I could, I could give you a controller now and you could score against anyone any, in any style you wanted? <laughs> 100%, 100%, 100%, 100%, 100%, 100%. You just do it and you knew how to score with every crash, team against every team. Yeah. I could crash <laughs> But it's true. It also represented such a step up. From my mind, it oh, was felt, like it sensible felt. soccer, basically, where it was a, just, you know, one pixel running around. And then suddenly it was like, yeah. this is real football. It felt yeah, like it, it was felt like real football. such a big change. It was amazing. Um it also had the ability to edit players in. Oh. And what it did when, you know, if you edit players in now to FIFA, you can just give them, I don't know if you can still do this, but when I last played FIFA, you can just give them whatever stats they want. <laughs> this way, it would give you an amount of stat 
and you'd get to share it around their attributes. So you'd have to decide what each player, like you'd have to balance the players up, create a team. It was fucking wonderful. I loved it. I yeah. loved that game so much. I'd say it's the, my favourite ever football computer game, actually. Wow. There you go, I've said it. It's interesting you say best game you've ever played. Have you ever gone back and tried to play it again? Because I played Goldeneye on the N64 about three years ago, and it was not as good as I remembered. In fact, yeah. it was really hard to play. Oh, really? Michael? Uh, well, I haven't revisited Goldeneye for a very oh. long time for that for that very reason. Don't go I, back. I don't, I don't want it to be tarnish like i love that game so much and very much like josh i was unplayable at goldeneye and i think part of it came down to you remember the n64 joypads have got that three kind of pronged almost like fork yeah. design yeah and you're supposed most people hold the middle uh prong which is where the um control joystick is, is yeah. so the left hand side bit is almost slightly redundant I, I didn't i used to hold it from each side because my fingers are so long, I could basically, my thumbs can reach and my f- fingers underneath can reach every button. And when you're playing Goldeneye, the way you have to strafe using those yellow buttons in the top corner, the sort of top right corner, the yellow arrow mm. button, it meant that I could sort of glide with a speed and efficiency <laughs> like I was on ice that, that, that no one else could. It was like I was just rollerblading around the maps. I was like... Oh. You're, you're listening to Show Off Pod with Josh Widdicombe <laughs> and Michael Marden, who apparently can do everything on any computer game ever. <laughs> I was so good at GoldenEye, when I was at the university, they would make me play it with my hands behind my back. And then after that, they made me what? play it with the oh, Come on, what, with your nose? They, no, no, no. Oh, I, would sorry, be no. Play, I would be playing it. I would be holding it, but the joypad wouldn't be in front of me. It would be, like, behind me. That was the only way to try and handicap me. And then... <laughs> And then they used to do, it would be three on one. So like they wouldn't kill each other. All they could do was kill me. And I, I would still win every single game. <laughs> That's how fucking good I am at GoldenEye. Yeah. But on the other side, you, you were really into Gloria Estefan, which did bring you down in the sort of, in the cool ratings. <laughs> it is a bit oh. like a Bond villain, isn't it? Like some crazy guy just listening to divas all day long and killing people. They can't get him. Because of his long thumbs. Because of his yeah. long thumbs. Yeah. <laughs> Goldeneye was one of the first games that made good use of the rumble pack. Remember the rumble yeah, pack? Yeah, the rumble you pack was, was the biggest the piece of dog shit of all yeah, time. Yeah, it was so pointless, but it was quite good in that game. Yeah, it would just yeah. vibrate. In, so if you had it in for ISS 64, if you got tackled, it would vibrate. You're like, that's not making me feel like I've been tackled. There was what also a rumour that went around school that my friend Rob used to put it down his pants and get repeatedly shot on Goldeneye. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he would do, he'd do it on purpose. He'd invite the mic all round, which is the only person that could actually get him to climax. <laughs> he was so good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, you got me again. Oh. <laughs> I can't believe it. <laughs> You're not allowed, the only rule is you're not allowed to use a golden gun. It has to be what the weapon with the most bullets. <laughs> Sustain firing for as long as possible. Yeah. My, my main memory of Goldeneye is the guy who got shot on the loo. Remember that? You used, used to climb up, climb on top. There's a guy who was on the toilet. And oh, the yeah, and yeah. Shoot him. That was a great moment. In the facility, the best level. Um, let's move on to football because that's what we're here for. We've created a lovely image of September 1996 with some strange details about our lives. But Skull, take us through September 1996 in the Premier League. In September 1996, one team's form sticks out amongst everyone else. It begins like this. Wimbledon, under Joe Kinnear, beat Spurs at home 1-0. Following week, they're smashing Everton at home 4-0. 
Uh, they go from there. They go to the Mighty Hammers. They win away from home, 2-0. Um, mm-hmm. And then they go on a little bit later that month to uh, Southampton at home. They win 3-1. Um, this is mad. And so, uh, and then last game of the month, they play away to Derby County, win 2-0. They won every game. Won every game. Smash Are they top of the league? They're not. I think they had such a poor start that by the end end of September, they are a mere uh, fifth place. So they they finished the month on 15 points for a plus five goal difference. That only gets them to fifth. Uh, Five points off. Liverpool. Who are twenty <gasps> points clear? Uh, who have twenty points? That'd be absurd. Um, <laughs> that would go down in history as one of the the greatest starts, followed by the biggest choke of all time. Twenty Liverpool points clear off. Twenty eight, points eight. by the end of September. <laughs> I know we'd like joke about like Wimbledon being like the crazy gang and all that, but there was this period in the mid nineties when they became less crazy gangy and started to be taken a bit more seriously as a genuinely good Premier League mm. team. Yeah, it's a yep. couple of years on from this, isn't it? So who is in that? So that would be like Ivan Lee and Hart and people like that were playing. Is that right? You'd have had Robbie Earl, you'd have had Marcus Gale, you'd have probably had Dean Holdsworth would probably be in that team. Yeah. Was it Wimbledon who, on the first day of the season, David Beckham scored the lob against? It was, wasn't yes, it? Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Did you like or hate Wimbledon? Yeah, that, that was point? what I was going to ask you. I quite, like, I, I quite like the fact that they didn't own a ground. There was something quite charming about the fact they just played at Selhurst Park, didn't they? At that, yeah, yeah, they were... They were sort of ground sharing as Crystal Palace, and they they didn't spend much money, and uh, I quite like that aspect. But they were quite uh, they were rather the crazy gang. They're quite unpleasant gang. The more you hear about it, the yeah. stuff you sort yeah. of that's not got the same ring to it. Not has it? a nice gang. <laughs> and you read the more you read about it, it's yeah, like, yeah. Uh, these I would have hated to have hung out with these guys. Yeah, basically. awful, awful. So people. I sort of mixed feeling. Also, I remember. Their their chairman, what was he? What's he called? Um, Sam Hamam. Sam Hamam was yeah. He always, always seemed quite objectionable. <laughs> quite can, can I read you the lineup for that? This is their last win of that month. A two yeah. win away at Derby. Neil Sullivan in goal. Did you really get the good, impression? A good goalie, really good goalie. Good goalie. This really yeah. is crazy gang two Kenny Cunningham, Brian McAllister, right. Chris Perry, Marcus Gale, yeah. Alan Kimball, not from the Fugitive. Neil Ardley, Robbie Earl, Vinnie Jones, Oivin Leonardson, Efanakoku up front. And get this for a sub. Efanakoku. Coming on for Efanakoku in the 89th minute. Mick Harford. Another oh. one where it feels like he's in the wrong era here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I felt like there was a group of teams, Wimbledon, Coventry, Southampton, they, they, who are always in the bottom half of the Premier League. And because they'd always been there when I was watching football... When they then went on to get relegated, I couldn't quite believe it was allowed and it was happening. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I was like, it felt to me like, well, things are never going to be the same again without Coventry <laughs> in the Premier League. And then instantly you get used to it. But it felt to me like yeah. this, is meant, this isn't the thing that's meant to happen. They're not meant to actually go down these teams. Yeah. I, I thought yeah. I wasn't used to new churn in the Premier League. I liked it to remain more or less exactly the same throughout the 90s. And it made me feel very unsettled when these teams left. You're right. When, when we would have got relegated, it was a genuinely sad day, wasn't it? Yeah. I, yeah. Think, I don't even know why. It's not like I particularly loved them. It just felt like, oh, we're, a piece of the 90s is, is disappearing here. It was Completely. like when you go, oh my, it was that moment when you go, I'm going to be dead one day. Time moves on. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly, your own mortality was shown to you. If yeah. Wimbledon go, go down, then I can age. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> this is <laughs> one one thing I did like about those sort of 
ugly teams in the 90s, I say ugly in the way that they played traditionally, was often, normally a central midfielder, there was one quite flary player who was brilliant. So like Robbie Earle, I thought was fantastic. He was brilliant. Letitia at Southampton. You have um, King Klatze, who would have been before he, yeah, like... Just, there was always that one guy in the middle who was so crucial in a way that's yeah. not really the case anymore. And they stayed there for a little while. And I always quite that quite exciting. You had all these sort of, you know, hard tackling Ben Thatcher's or break your jaw types. And then this is yeah. one person who was the hope. JJ Akotcha, for example, when he was at Bolton, although yeah. that's a weird one because they brought in Jokiaf and a few of these players that made it a bit more finesse. Sam Allardyce. But, and yeah. I, I'm, I know that, I know Michael and Chris would defend Sam Allardyce to their dying day as the greatest England manager who's ever lived. But <laughs> he probably doesn't get the respect he deserves the amount of flair players he kind of had at Bolton here we go here we go yeah (laughs) yeah yeah. he had many ways of playing yeah they're all all flair players with about six months of their career left to go yeah of course course. (laughs) very much (laughs) that's true players Um, who'd now be in China basically I've got another astonishing stat about Wimbledon this this season we're talking about here so they'd lost their first three games of the season so they played three games in August. They lost at home to Man United 3-0. That was the Beckham game, I think. Yeah. And then lost away to Newcastle 2-0. Lost away to Leeds 1-0. That's yeah. an awful start, though. Like, tough, tough fixtures. So as we've established, they won every game in September. And get this, they didn't lose another game until the 22nd of December. They won no. or drawn. By the time the 22nd of December turns up, they're third in the league. No way. Wow. Yes. And when they do get beat, they get absolutely thumped by Villa 5-0. Oh, wow. wow. It's funny, that, isn't it? How teams can just put a massive run together like that out of nowhere. And I wonder if at that point anyone's going, are Wimbledon going to do this? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. The other interesting thing is you say Liverpool were top on 20 points and you imagine that Liverpool were nothing to do with ever winning the league in the 90s. But there were points when their fans genuinely believed that they were going to win the league, I think. I think the big stories, though, in the Premier League that month, though weren't the results, but there was two huge managerial changes. Firstly, let's start with possibly one of the biggest moments in the history of the Premier League, Arsene Wenger joining Arsenal. Do you remember this happening? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Vividly. I remember having absolutely no idea who yeah. it was. Same with everyone else and the rest of the press. Like, who is this weird dweeby sort of professor guy that's, that's get... coming from the guy that can play oh no I'm listening to Gloria Estefan apparently Arsene Wenger can write a team sheet with both hands tied behind his back apparently he can do it on a piece of paper and he'll, he'll definitely get the right team and he will win so. I never said they were I never said they were tied behind my back that was Street Fighter 2 that I, they had to tie my hands behind my back but my, the main thing I remember about um, Arsene Wenger being appointed was to do with his predecessor Stuart Houston yes. who for me is the sort of archetypal caretaker manager when you just know that they're not up to the job. Yeah, like yeah. you know when a sort of an assistant manager steps in and whether they want the job or not, their first from from their first press conference, they're almost like a supply teacher that comes in yeah. and has <laughs> lost the room before they've even got to their desk. Yeah. Like, oh, this is going to be carnage. This is a free for all. And he always had that sort of sort of defeated look yeah. of certain assistant or caretaker managers where you're like Oh, dude. Sorry, mate. Surely they always have some like long-term attachment to the club as well, don't yeah. they? Normally, they've been there yeah. for ages and they've done the under twenty ones and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. And there's this sort of idea that they might have a chance, but we all know those years count for nothing. <laughs> you're yeah. right in this job. If you've worked at a club in a in a cushy job for fifteen years, and you get made caretaker, and then you win three games, yeah. and they offer you the manager's job. 
do not take it. <laughs> because, because your luck won't last. And then you'll get sacked as manager. And then you've no longer got a job. Yeah. Just stick with your easy job. Well, you can't risk wait. nothing. That's a take-home risk message. Risk nothing in your life. That is my tip. If, if an assistant gets made manager and it goes bad, like it's made permanent manager and then it goes wrong, they like your career's over, isn't it? You re- No one ever goes, oh, he might be still be good. It's like you've had one shot and it's not worked out. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. let's I'm glad you brought up Stuart Houston Michael because I thought we've discussed Fenger enough. So let's look at the other side of this. So I've drilled down into Stuart Houston. He was caretaker when George Graham left and then Bruce Rioch got the job. Bruce Rioch who as manager of Arsenal for a year is one of the great forgotten men of Quickly Kevin. We never yes. mentioned Bruce Rioch. Yeah. It's a shame. Uh, he lasted a year and then he got sacked in the summer, and they just gave Houston the caretaker manager at the start of the season because Wenger couldn't start until September. Oh, wow. And then, get this, Stuart Houston gets the job at QPR as manager from his work yeah. as caretaker at Arsenal. So he leaves, and Pat Rice has to take over as caretaker <laughs> before <laughs> Arsene Wenger turns up. Oh, wow. I don't remember any of that. <sighs> there is another twist. Yeah, the, the best twist of all is... Stuart Houston takes the job at QPR and appoints as his assistant Bruce Rioch. Oh, lovely. Yeah. <laughs> lovely. Imagine that reversal. How awkward that is. Bruce Rioch saying, I think we should do this. And Stuart Houston going, Yeah, mate, but the tables have turned and I make the decisions now. <laughs> That's amazing. Didn't Bruce Rioch, I don't think Bruce Rioch actually, did he sign Burkamp? Is that right? And some of these players. It's yes. like this idea that Wenger came in and bought, but he actually didn't. A, number, a few of these signings were to do with Rioch. Well, I think the long rumour is that Bruce Rioch was already unknowingly keeping the seat warm for a year. Yes. And okay. so Burkamp was, was actually already earmarked by, you know how Man City were, were signing players because they knew Guardiola was going to show up? Do you remember yeah. when that was? Yeah, I think the rumour was that Bergkamp, and I think it was Platt was the other one they signed at that point, were Arsene Wenger pointed out signings already. But I don't know if that's true. Okay. Do email in if you know the answer to that. Um, I heard I heard that Wenger came in, and there was a post-it note on the desk, and it had loads of stuff. It said, like, keep an eye on Thierry Henry. I think this kid might be good and stuff like this. It's real <laughs> written down. Also, maybe more passing football with two French central midfielders might work. Question mark. That's what Rioch had written. <laughs> Can I read you a quote from Bruce Rioch, which I think is the most 90s quote of all time. This is a quote from Bruce Rioch uh, when he was sacked uh, as assistant manager of QPR. I think this, to me, is the most 90s sentence that's ever been uttered. I was at home watching the Louise Woodward case on television when I turned on CFAX and read that I had been sacked. Isn't that... That's funny. Really Isn't 90s. that the most perfect quote you've ever heard in your life? The thought that Bruce Rioch was at home watching the Louise Woodward case, <laughs> not knowing <laughs> that his life was about to change unutterably. It's, it feels like, Josh, it feels like a, an author is doing the first line of his book where he wants to make it clear it's set in the 90s without actually saying it's set in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> How can I hide this behind language? Yeah, I began to sweat. My global hypercolour t-shirt changed colour. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a bit on Arsenal. Yeah. I have got a bit of uh, something. Ha- seminal moment happens in the, this month, September nineteen ninety six. Patrick Vieira makes his debut for Arsenal. Does he? Wow. But also, another interesting thing is Patrick Vieira and Remy Gard had been signed by Arsenal before Wenger was announced as the. Uh, oh, well, there we go. There so that, we go. There we go. And the rumor was: Were they Stuart Houston spots? <laughs> 
And Stuart Houston doesn't get the credit for the French Revolution. <laughs> it's a crying shame. What's the real sadness for QPR fans is if they'd got Stuart Houston a bit earlier, presumably he'd have signed Vieira and Remy Gard for them. <laughs> the 90s would have been very different. The 90s would have been very different. Um, Shall we talk about the other managerial change of night, September 90s? There's a lot of events going on, isn't mm, there? Vieira's yeah, yeah, debut. Yeah, exciting month. George Graham, the former Arsenal manager, replaces Howard Wilkinson at Leeds. Mm-hmm. And when I read that, I couldn't believe that Howard Wilkinson was still manager of Leeds in 1996. He was there for all of that start of the Premier League. And I have literally, I don't think I have any memory of Leeds from that team to the Lee Bowyer team. It's like a complete black hole to me. George Graham to Leeds. It feels like, I remember that at the time thinking, this just feels right though. Yeah, it was very on the nose, wasn't it? Yeah, it's great casting. Yeah, it's perfect. Like <laughs> it's perfect. Like, well, it worked with Don Revy, so let's yeah. do it again. We're like, we're a bit of a shit house of a club. Let's look around. Who's the biggest shit house manager? There he yeah. is. Get him in. Yeah. Well, interestingly, so so Howard Wilkinson leaves leaves Leeds in September 1996. But did you know this? A year before, in the summer of '95, Howard Wilkinson was approached about the Arsenal job. And he wanted to no. go, but Leeds said no. Oh, wow. And one year no, later, his no, stock no. has fallen so low, he's out the door. I remember Howard Wilkinson became, after that, a kind of um, a kind of looming threat every time the England manager's job came up. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he became a bit of an FA suit, didn't he? I think he might, have even been a, he might have even taken over for a couple of games when someone resigned. And I always thought, please not Howard Wilkinson. <laughs> He just felt so uniquely uninspiring as a personality. I know. He really is. Like, whenever I picture Howard Wilkinson, he's just grey skin. Yeah. Grey, like, dead behind the eyes. Monotonous tone. He wasn't dissimilar to John Major, was he? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> in terms of the era. The success in 1992, they shared, and then they both kind of greyly carried on for a few more years. But there's a lot of managers from that period that could only really have worked in that period. Like Kinnear, you mentioned earlier, is exactly the same. Obviously, a different sort of personality, but they were just—they're so of the mid '90s. Yeah, that you would never. As you, I think Allardyce is, as you say, sort of, he's a bit of a legacy, but of that time, for some reason, he feels like that. Yeah. But there's just so many of his managers that you just would would never would never see now. It just it just just wouldn't happen. Howard Wilkinson as well, very great. This I feel like this was the era of the like dead skinned manager. She also had Brian Little. Do you remember Brian Little? <laughs> like I yeah. used to think there was something wrong with pictures of Brian Little because it's like there's no colour in his face. <laughs> do email in if you've got any more dead skinned managers. Dead skinned nineties managers. Do email them in. <laughs> Joe Kinnear when he came to Newcastle many many years later. There was oh, that yeah. weird appointment, and that oh, yeah. was a perfect example of I think how far the game had moved on. Where yeah, you had, someone had transplanted a sort of iconic '90s football manager into the modern game, and you're like, even his press conferences, like, what the fuck is this guy talking about? <laughs> it was like, all right, granddad. Yeah, do you know what it felt like? You know, in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, when they like take Genghis Khan bowling, and it's like. <laughs> <laughs> um, now we've done manager of the month and I think the other thing that obviously marks out a month is goal of the month and this month it was Carol Poborski against Leeds Ian Rush getting in front of his marker there David Beckham look at that he's everywhere 
and a good pass too to Cantona. That changes the whole shape of the play. And here's Karol Pogorski right through on goal for Manchester United. And that just about seals it. It's 3-0. And Cantona congratulated by his colleagues, as is Pogorski. Michael, as the Man U fan, I'd, I, I'll be honest, I have no memory of this goal. <laughs> and I don't want to rile you up before you speak. But I think it's the worst goal of the month I've ever seen. <laughs> I when I watched it, I was because it's. I think it was a four 0 win against Leeds. He scores yeah. it, and we, I was watching the highlights of that whole match. It was the game that got Howard Wilkinson sacked. Yeah, wow. and I the the goal is so underwhelming as a goal. I just presumed he scores another goal. <laughs> and that's the goal that was going to be the goal of the month. So when I think possibly Cantona scores the fourth, I was just like, oh no, hold on a minute, I'm gonna have to rewind and watch that again. <laughs> It was just, it's just fine. It's just fine. It's just like, a, yeah. it's just a goal. There isn't a bit of skill. There's a nice through ball from Cantona and like a fairly conventional finish from Poborski. I was like, oh, well, he's obviously going to chip him. He's obviously going to yeah, chip I him. I thought he was going to do a chip. Poborski I thought does. he was going to do a, like, a, a self-referential chip of the goal. <laughs> yeah. The old scoop boot out. <laughs> like, I can't believe there weren't better goals than that that month that's crazy because I, in my memory of goal of the month and i used to love it it was the highlight of match of the day for me was that oh these are just gonna be banger after banger like oh what's yeah. Burkamp doing this what's letizier doing this month <laughs> it was dreadful you know, everyone always talks about like oh what this month was a great month for goal of the month and like you sometimes you see those high like uh like a random 90s month and it's like wow every goal was good where were the month where every goal is bad well this, this must be this must be what the worst ever month for goal of the month <laughs> yeah if that's winning like to win, to beat ten other goals, and it's that. To give bad. you an idea, the eighth goal is a penalty. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen it? September's goal of the month. I, no, I'd love to watch. If anyone's got <laughs> September '96's goal of the month, if I if I was the producer of Match of the Day, I would go. I think we just skip goal of the month this month. Do you want to? I think we just leave it out. It's fine. <laughs> just don't mention. We'll come back next month. Nobody's going. Nobody's going to know. Everyone's tired from the Euros. Exactly. Yeah. I've got a theory on this goal of the month. You know when. Al Pacino won an Oscar for Centre of Woman <laughs> yeah. because of his previous work. Yeah. Is this a kind of, they're giving it to Poborski because they feel he should have got something for that goal at Euro 96. And they, they, yeah, they feel he deserves a goal of the month. He's never had one. <laughs> or was, the, was the excitement around Carol Poborski so much at this point? Bear in mind, presumably the goal of the month for August was David Beckham's goal against Wimbledon the most iconic goal of the 90s. Yeah. What a come down. But um, do you think the excitement around Poborski was so much that people just... Oh, that's like, a, it's interesting. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? In a bit like, currently people are just think anything Cristiano Ronaldo does is just a stroke of genius because the excitement about him being here is so much. How did you feel, Michael, when Poborski joined Man United? Were you thinking, oh, this is brilliant. We've got this guy who's amazing. <sighs> it, what, it's one of those been? ones. And we've, yeah, we've covered this obviously a lot on the podcast where pre-internet the sort of not knowing about a player going into an, into an international tournament and then having I don't even think Poborski had a good tournament I think that was a very lucky goal that he scored in Euro 96 he got a few right. fortunate bounces but because it was a foreign player that you knew nothing about it was definitely a sense of excitement I think the Such problem a with non- Ferguson was, signing as well wasn't it well, we were we had sold Kanchelskis the year before which I uh. think was a mistake because he went on to have a brilliant three year few years at Everton after that but then Beckham came through the season before and then obviously scored that goal against Wimbledon. So Poborski never really got 
the chance that he probably thought or we thought he yeah. had because Beckham's ascendancy was just sort of so quick and so amazing. So I, as a Manchester United fan, see him as a little bit of a flop. He was he was there for less than two seasons before he sold him to Benfica. So I don't remember being excited. I mean, my, my main thing about that summer was that we had lost Alan Shearer. Like Shearer went to Newcastle. And, and had he gone yeah. to United, I think we probably would have won every Premier League until he left, until he retired. Would you like to hear the top 10 transfers of that summer in England to give you a feeling? I'd say it's possibly everyone. Well, it's an iconic summer of transfers. So from 10 to what? No, let's start at one because we know it's Alan Shearer to Newcastle, 15 million. Yeah. Ravinelli to Middlesbrough, 7 million. Oh. Di Matteo to Chelsea, 4.5 million. Poborski to Man U, 3.6. Emerson to Middlesbrough, 3.5. Gary Speed to Everton, 3.4. Boya to Leeds, 3 million. Mm. Gary McAllister to Coventry, 3 million. Wow, wow. Andy Booth to Sheffield Wednesday, 2.7 million. Frank LeBeouf to Chelsea, 2.5 million. It's mad that neither Liverpool or Arsenal or Blackburn have got a player in the top 10 signings. Frank LeBeouf's an interesting one there. I, I, he was a superb player, and he represented a different type of defender that was starting to come in at that point, didn't he? He was yeah. good with his feet, could find a pass. But just, I remember him thinking, thinking he was just fantastic. Did Frank LeBeouf remind anyone of Robocop when he's got his helmet off? <laughs> <laughs> I've always thought it. Um, yeah. Can I just compare? Bear in mind, Andy Booth was 2.7 million, Boya 3 million, etc. Right? Um, can I just take you through a few of the Italian ones? So, mm. top, the most expensive Italian tra- tra- incoming was Chiesa to Parma for 10 million, Boxic right, yeah. to Juventus 6 million, 2 Rams Parma 4.5. The 10th most expensive Italian transfer, 3.2 million, was Zinedine Zidane to Juventus. That's wow. insane. Just, just 500,000 more than Andy Booth. <laughs> That's wow. insane. What? That's crazy. Because that, that implies that the money is knocking around the English game, doesn't it? And then, yeah. So why aren't they just going... Did you, like, How do they not know to try and make a play for Zidane? Or is he just not interested? Well, he, has, he has ended up at Juventus. Which, I mean, that, so there may have been interest. I mean, Juventus obviously were and still are huge. So they might, that may have been a def- you know, deciding factor. Yeah. I don't think he was presented with the option of Sheffield Wednesday and Juventus. <laughs> 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 Wednesday didn't have him lined up, but chose Andy Booth instead. <laughs> that's also, uh, you get a real sense of the rapid inflation of transfer fees like Shearer being 15 million that summer and then the next most expensive transfer being half of that amount was the first example but two years later I think or roughly two years later Zidane sold for 40 something million to Real Madrid yeah Sheffield Wednesday missed out again then, didn't they? They even offered a swap featuring Andy Booth. They were just a word going for Juventus, not interested. Just one thing on Frank LeBeouf. When you Google Frank LeBeouf, it says Frank LeBeouf, French actor. Oh, really? He's done a D on Dublin, hasn't he? He's just reinvented it. He he popped up in something that that I had watched. The Theory of Everything. He's in The Theory of Everything. Yes, that's it. That's The Theory of Everything. Frank LeBeouf's in The Theory of Everything. Yeah, he plays Stephen Hawking's Doctor. What? (laughs) (laughs) Imagine watching that. Did you just see him and go, is that Frank LeBeouf? No, I watched that film. In my mind's eye, I can see him now, but I didn't clock it was Frank. You're not not watching a film like that expecting Frank LeBeouf to turn up. Of course. (laughs) I, I was watching it in the cinema, and I turned to my partner and said, that guy looks like Frank LeBeouf. And she just went, <laughs> who the fuck is Frank LeBeouf? <laughs> <laughs> that guy looks like 
Wow, that is that is a great phenomenal find. piece of trivia. One final seismic event I'd like to finish with. This month saw Glenn Hoddle's first game as England manager, a 3-0 win in Moldova, which was the debut of both David Beckham and Andy Hinchcliffe. Which, you know, two men who went to patrol the wings for England for the next decade. (laughs) (laughs) I I really rated Andy Hinchcliffe back in the day, though, I must admit. He he used to get so many assists, and he was fantastic from a corner and from free kicks. I really, really rated him. Yeah, I presumed Andy Hinchcliffe was going to be a big deal. Yeah. I thought that's our left back issue sorted. I really thought he's he's brilliant. He'll be at United. He'll be you know whatever. But it didn't yeah. work out obviously. But I no. thought he's brilliant. Um, this so this England Moldova game. This really did feel like the rebirth of England. I remember it being a massive deal. Um, yeah, because it was the first game after Euro '96. I I do I don't remember many qualifiers, but I do remember this being quite a big thing and a big famous debut in it. David Beckham is three 0 against Moldova. A good result, or how are how are they looking at that? Is that basically, you know, we've scraped that? It, it should. No, be I think that's a solid win. Nil. I don't think is it. No, I don't think Moldova were that bad. Were they? Okay. They're not a San Marino, are they? They're not. No, they're, they're like, not a San Marino. They're going to give you a game. Name me a top three Moldovan players, then. Probably Sergei Belus. Seeing as I've got the <laughs> starting lineup in front of me. <laughs> 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 okay, to, to my mind, you should be winning that 6 or 7 nil. Let's have a look at the group that they're in. So Moldova finished bottom with zero points. Yeah, there you go. And a goal difference of minus 19. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and you know, interestingly, when England thrashed Moldova 4-0 at Wembley, two of the goals scored by Ian Wright. Just a few, I can't in my mind so picture him ever scoring for England. No, yeah. he played for England against Italy in that, uh, in that win, but he didn't go to the World Cup. Um, now, really, this month... It's David Beckham's debut for England. Wannabe is number one. Does this feel like it was the month that began a whole new era for the country? This 90s 2.0. Arsene Wenger coming in as well. That's that's, that's Arsene Wenger coming in. Hugely sort of catalytic. Glenn Hoddle taking over England. Joe yeah. Kinnear winning five games. This is a huge month. <laughs> Frank LeBouff getting to grips with the language. <laughs> laying the foundations for his cinematic career. <laughs> Michael mastering Goldeneye with his long thumbs. <laughs> well, I feel like we should end, we should score it so we can compare it to, in terms of importance and quality, how much you're going to take off for goal of the month. <laughs> so give me your score. Everyone write down their score. So scoring it, there's four judges. It's basically like strictly style scoring, okay. I suppose. But I want you to, to show your workings. Should we start with Crane? I'm going high. I'm giving it a nine. A nine? Wow. Yeah. Bearing in mind that other months contain international tournaments. Yes, this is true. But for me, it's the Wenger point. And in terms of what that represented for the changing shape of the game and the style in which we became accustomed to. I think think it was just such an... He was such an important figure. Whatever you think of the end of his Arsenal days, what he did in terms of changing the English game is huge. I think he was so fundamental to everything that exists now in our game. Um, that's why I give it a nine. And I worry he would have given it a 10 if it wasn't for Baborski, to be honest. I've knocked off one for that. <laughs> but uh, I, 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 yeah, I think it's, it's so crucial. He's such a crucial figure. And I loved him back then. I loved the players he brought in. I found it, they were such an exciting team. And uh, yeah, so I've, I've got nine. I'm going to go eight uh, because I think there's a lot of important things. The debut of David Beckham, the launch of the N64 wannabe, Glenn Hoddle, Wenger, obviously. But I don't believe that there's many iconic games and everything that we're talking about is outside of football. Do you know what I mean? There's no actual 
on-pitch moments, so I'm going to give it an eight. I think I'm going to give it a seven. Not because I disagree with anything that's been said. I just feel like the seeds were being planted in this month. We weren't sort of yet to see the the fruit or the, the blossom of the flowers as a result of it. So it's hard to sort of really appreciate what it was in the moment and in hindsight. But I have just remembered talking about Goldeneye there and A-levels earlier. Uh, I failed my design A-level. And the reason I failed it is because based on my love of Goldeneye, uh, not particularly Bond, but Goldeneye, uh, my end of... A level project was I was going to build a um, uh, James Bond themed crazy golf course that could, that, that could be moved in and out like it was modular during the weather. And basically, I just didn't do it throughout the whole year. And then, right at the end, I made something out of MDF. And because I had no design skills at all, I stuck it together with double sided sellotape. And when, when it came to like the, the grading, my design teacher picked it up and it sort of all just fell apart in his hands because it was just stuck together and he he said to me he said to me look me in the eyes and said you are a disgrace to the design profession (laughs) chris well i i was going to give this a nine i think it's a seminal month for all the reasons we've discussed but i'm going to knock a point off i'm going to knock a point off because of one of the number ones this month was responsible for perhaps one of the worst moments of my life now, on the Patreon Valentine special we did, you may have remember that I talked about a girl that I used to fax a lot, literally fax. Yeah. Um, yeah. This same girl, I think it was in this month, we had a school disco, and I was plucking up the courage. Um, the faxing had kind of died down. I thought, I'm going to pluck up the courage to ask her for a dance, and I'm sure it was in this month because I hadn't heard this song that was number one. I asked her for a dance as this song began, and she looked at me and said, this isn't a slow song and just walked off. Oh. It was Deep Blue Something, Breakfast at Tiffany's. Oh. It starts slow oh. and it picks up. It was totally inappropriate for a slow dance. You're never going to pop your hands on the bum to that. You look like a fool if you tried to slow dance it. Do you think about that every time you hear Every Deep time. And really? It, when, I saw it, it was, when I saw it, it was number one this month. Was, my heart just sank a bit. I can't be giving it nine <laughs> points from memory like that. I'm, I'm also, I'm glad Deep Blue Something never did anything else. They deserve it. They've almost ruined yeah. my life. <laughs> so eight points, September 96. It's an overall score of 32 for September 1996. I've thoroughly enjoyed travelling back there. It's been a very pleasant experience. Very much so. Yeah, it's been great. I look forward to travelling back to a different month and a different time. And Chris, as a guest, will you come back on the show again? <laughs> I'd love to. I'd love to. I'd love to come back anytime. That was September 1996, a glorious month. I do look forward to doing one where it's just a really shit month and we all give it like three out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, it yeah. was really bad. It was like eight. It's like a pre-season one. Yeah. There's, there's no football. Yeah, July. <laughs> <laughs> July 1997. A couple of celebrity deaths <laughs> and uh, <laughs> sort of economics worries, basically. Yeah. Um, if you uh, if you have any months you want to suggest for that that you think would be great months for us to do, do email in and we'll try and do some more of those episodes in upcoming series. Tom Crane's podcast, My Favourite Takeaway, is available now on all your podcast apps. We haven't got time for a quiz this week, sadly. Uh, but um, we should also say, uh, we made an error last week, we were sent a quiz that we thought a listener had come up with, but it was from the Tuesday Club, the Arsenal podcast. Uh, none of us are Arsenal fans. So we hadn't listened to it, but um, 
It was very funny. So if you've got any more Tuesday Club stuff, do send it across because <laughs> we'll happily do it. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Michael, as we haven't got time for quiz, would you like to choose the outro song? Oh, I'd love to. And I think it's only fair in tribute to me uh, besting Chris Skoll in the courtroom of Roberto Baggio that we uh, we humiliate him even more with uh, Deep Blue Something and Breakfast at Tiffany's. Beautiful. <laughs> and can I just for once get to say, Robbie Slater, see you later. You'll say we've got nothing in common. No common ground to start from And we're falling apart You'll say The world has come between us Our lives have come between us Still I know you just don't care And I said She said, I think I remember This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.